This is Recognize, a podcast about the NHL's black and biracial hockey heroes, proudly supported by eBay Canada. Ever since I was a kid, I collected hockey cards with spare change my dad gave me. As a black person, to see others like me on the ice inspired me. They were my role models and showed me hockey is a game for everyone. I've collected 100 rookie cards for NHL's black and biracial players, and I'm going to talk to all of them so you can learn their stories. There's McKay and Townsend. They're going to go. There you go. He's not in the heavyweight division, I'll tell you right now. No, but six foot, 220 yeah. pounds. He, yeah. Graham Townsend was born in Jamaica in 1965. He moved to Canada at the age of four and played for the Boston Bruins, New York Islanders, and Ottawa Senators in the 1990s. Hello there, Graham. It's uh, nice to meet you and, and nice to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Dean. I appreciate you inviting me. So uh, to start out with, I'm just going to show a photo. Um, this is a, a card that's in my collection. And just wondering if you can see that and uh, what comes to mind when you see that uh, image of you, that card? Um, well, that's a young kid who uh, couldn't believe he was playing in the NHL. <laughs> <laughs> And if I probe further on this, um, the year would be around 1993, I believe. No, 1990, I believe, right? Yep, 89, 90, 91. Yep, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and have you seen this before? And do you remember when it was taken? I don't remember when it was taken, but I, I have seen the photo before. Uh, but I don't remember who we were playing against. I know it was a home game. Yeah. Yeah, because especially back then, that's when uh, homes were still whites, right? So, um so you're saying that's a it's a young kid that was just really thrilled to 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 make it to the NHL, I guess, right? Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. Um I just uh pinched myself every day to make sure it was real. So um did you ever collect cards as a young person or um remembered uh collecting cards? Oh absolutely. Um not only did I collect cards, but I was more I guess you could say a card shark. We used to play um, play each other for our card collections, and we'd have these little games where you could win another person's cards. And I became pretty good at uh, all the games we played. So I won. I won a lot of my collection. Um, didn't buy them. Won them mostly. And uh, I guess you could say I was more of a hustler. I guess at that age, at yeah. young age. And this is in the seventies. Were you were you speaking about when you're eight or ten years old or twelve years old? Do you remember exactly? Between the ages of maybe eight and twelve is when I. Did a lot of that, and then after after twelve, I stopped collecting cards. But um, but I was really into it for about four or five years. <clears throat> and how did you get your cards? Did you uh, was there a favorite store you'd buy them from, or uh, no? Well, we, we would go down to the Max Milk down the street from um, our apartment building. I'd buy I'd buy a couple sets here and there. Back then, I think they were ten cents for a pack. But I won most of my cards. We we just play these games, and um, what you do is you if you win the game, you win the other guy's cards, and sometimes you could win up to 10, 15 cards in, in one shot. So I got I practiced a lot, got really good at the games, and and um, <clears throat> found ways to sort of I guess make people feel comfortable, let them win a few games here and there, and then I'd just take everything they had <laughs> going for the big haul. Eh? Yeah, <laughs> and I. I know a big thing now is keeping packages uh, unopened. Was that such a thing or, or you knew the lot of cards that you were winning? Yeah, we knew, but we, we ruined our cards back then because of the games we played often would, would dent the ends of the cards, the corners and stuff. And obviously now you, 
you wouldn't you wouldn't do anything like that. But um, yeah, we we didn't uh, we didn't we didn't have as much reverence for card collecting back then as they do today. So the card I showed you earlier, um, have you kept any of your cards of yourself? That uh... yeah, you know, I, I'm not much of a I'm not much of a memorabilia type guy. Uh, I do have things, uh, cards and things like that, photos, jerseys, but they're really they're in my basement in Rubbermaid containers. Um, I don't really have much use for them, I guess. It's just nice to everyone, every so often, maybe once a year, I'll go down there and I'll take a look and see what I have. And uh, sometimes their uh, kids will ask me for cards. So I'll go down and see if I could find some and, and uh, ship them out to people. That's really all I do now. I don't really, oh, nice. yeah, I don't look at them too often. Yeah. And we're in an era now where NHL players have so many multiple jerseys. Were you able to keep any of your game worn jerseys or even just replica jerseys from the teams you played with? I didn't keep any of the jerseys from, um, my NHL days, you know, it's just kind of weird. I never really thought about that back then. Um, and I, I don't even know how I got my, I've got my college jersey. I don't even know how I got that. I think someone sent it to me. And, um, and then, um, as far as my NHL jerseys, I never really asked for them. I just, I just wasn't much of a, a Jersey collector or anything like that. It's just, I I'd do it. I'd play and enjoy the moment and then move on. Yeah. And it seemed to be kind of a different era that way. Right. So, I, I um, think so. Yeah. So I know that you played with four NHL teams between 1990 and 1994, then continued to play a minor pro in the AHL, IHL, and WPHL for a number of years. I'm just going to take a step back and ask you about your um, first experiences. And um, maybe let's even go further back because my parents are of Jamaican heritage. And I understand you moved to Canada from Jamaica, I think, when you are four years old. So do you have any recollections of your life in Jamaica? I really don't, um, other than just seeing the occasional photo at my mom's house. I don't really remember anything. I we moved to Toronto when I was I was about three and a half years old. It was I remember my mom telling me it was March of I think nineteen sixty nine, and um, my mom tells me a story about how we got off the plane and we didn't know that you know we didn't know it was going to be cold in March. So I had a a little like sort of a light sweater on and. I got off the plane and back in those days, I remember, I do kind of have a vague memory of uh, getting off the, off the, the, this, uh, these steps. There was no, um, gangway back in those days. You, you got off the plane, you're outside. And I, my mom says, I looked up to her and said, um, mommy, I want to go back to Jamaica because Canada's too cold. <laughs> That's all I could think of when I was three. So it was definitely yeah. cold. You're, you're bang on the mark. So, uh, what was it like growing up in your household? And is there a particular part of Toronto where you grew up you want to share with us? When we first moved to Toronto, we were in um, the Don Mills and uh, Don Mills and Eglinton area, right across down the street from the Science Center. So that was a um, that was early on, and then we moved to um, Pape and Danforth. I think uh, two years later, my dad went decided to go to university. My dad had a my dad was a very successful journalist in Jamaica, but when he came to Canada, um, you know, obviously I'm just going to come out and say it. There there was there was definitely a, it was definitely tough for for people of color to get jobs in Canada. And, and they're, they're definitely race had a lot to do with it. In fact, he was in your, your line of work. And um, he went to, he went to a prominent um, Canadian broadcasting corporation and interviewed for a job. And they told him that uh, they were looking for a mid Atlantic accent. And my dad was puzzled. He said, well, what, what is a mid Atlantic accent? And the guy said, well, it's somewhere between England and the U S. So, you know, he, my dad got the message and, this happened over and over again. Then they told me should, he should go up to Thunder Bay to start there and work his way back to Toronto. So he just said, forget this. I'm, I'm going to become a lawyer. 
So my dad decided to go to go to school, get his undergraduate degree in his law degree. He actually did it at the same time, believe it or not. And um, within six years, my dad was an attorney with his own practice. And oh, wonderful! Yeah. So Pape and Danforth, and then where does that lead you in terms of uh, the, some of the experiences you had growing up uh, with your your hockey experiences? Uh, first first time you learned to skate, and who supported you? Yeah, well, I, I started playing street hockey, or we called it ball hockey back then, and with the neighborhood kids and did that for several years, I'd say for about three years. And then finally one day, um, my school, I think I was in third grade. Uh, my school went to the went to city hall to go skating and I had a pair of skates. I think I borrowed them from somebody. And I remember putting the skates on trying to, you know, trying to tie them. And I was really nervous. I thought that you know, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to stand up on those thin blades. And when I stood up, I was surprised I could stand and, you know, I made my way around the ice, struggled, fell down all the time, but I really enjoyed it. And then we started playing uh, pond hockey, which was across the street. There's a Dominion store, which is now called Metro, right? And the store had closed down, but there's this huge parking lot, a massive parking lot that used to turn to this, just, a, I'd say that it had to be the size of a football field almost, or maybe half of a football field. It was all ice. And we play, we play um, pond hockey out there for, you know, hours and hours every day in the winter. Amazing. Was it just the fact that weather was different back then? Because it doesn't seem to be those opportunities don't exist in Toronto anymore. They don't. I, I, I go to Toronto frequently and I'll drive around and it'll be December or January and there's no ice. There, there are no rinks. It's all, it's all, you know, basically grass. I mean, back when I was a kid, um, and obviously global, um, sorry, climate change has a lot to do with it. It has to because I, when I was a kid, I would say by mid-November to the beginning of March, we would have ice. And, you know, what's that three, four months almost um, that we'd be able to skate and we could skate every day. There might be a couple of rain days where we couldn't go out there. But for the most part, we could we were on the ice three, four hours every single day, seven days a week for a good two, three months for sure. Yeah, it's it's um, really tremendous. The fact that you had these opportunities just to be kind of creative and play outside until your parents called you in. It's what it seems like, right? Yeah, I, I never I never I never got called in. I never. Even even at eight nine years old, I never went in. We we would be playing a game, and we all we'd always set it up where we'd have two teams, and it'd be a series. So we'd have a best of seven series every day, and there would there was the first you know basically the you know we'd combine each period was combined scores of five. So if you you know we get three, they get two. That's the first period. We go on and we'd do that. And and I got to tell you, if if it came down to game seven and I curfew's nine o'clock, um, I'm not going until game seven's over. And it's funny, I, I say that, and I, I'd get a, I'd get a licking when I got in for sure. And um, those days when we won, the, the, it was well worth it. The days when we lost, yeah. it was a double punishment because we lost, <laughs> like, and I got the strap. Yeah. But I, I didn't yeah. care. I just wanted to play hockey, and if that meant I, I, I'd have to suffer some punishment as a result of it, then that was, you know, so be it. Which is crazy. I mean, I'm eight years old. I'm out, out at nine o'clock. Yeah. dark, and I don't even care. You know, it's just back. Really showed you. You couldn't do that today for sure. Yeah, to show the, the passion and love for the game. So then, that does that experience then lead it to um, uh, house league uh, rep hockey? Can you tell us about your journey there? Oh yeah, I had, I had two really good friends, Jerry James and a kid, guy named Donnie Oderkirk, who both played hockey. We're the same age, and um, it's funny. I uh, I I just thought hockey would be too expensive for my mom, and I didn't. I never just. I didn't want. Didn't want to ask her. And then I remember them asking me to play. And I made a lot of excuses, you know, and the, the big excuse was I didn't think I, we could afford it. And then Donnie informed me that the team we were playing that we were trying out for was free. 
So then I said, well, I don't have any equipment. So Donnie had two older brothers, three older brothers, and they all had this hand-me-down equipment in their basement. And uh, we went over to his basement one day and he said, just pick up what you need. So I went through all the, there was shin pads, elbow pads, shoulder pads everywhere. And I, I picked out what I needed. My mom bought me a pair of pants, uh, gloves, and a helmet. And I was ready to go. So I went to try out. I made the team. And the first year we played, um, the championship game was at Maple Leaf Gardens. We got to play at Maple Leaf Gardens when I was 10. Oh, and what team is this you're playing well, for? Well, I, I played for two teams. One was called the Paper Recreation Center. It was a rec league. And then the other one was the was the Blake Street Public School. There's actually a, an elementary school league. And we we won our, our we went to the championship game at Maple Leaf Gardens and won that. So that was a huge thrill. I, I was funny. It was my first year playing. We won a championship at Maple Leaf Gardens. And I figured, hey, this is what it's, it's always like this, right? You know, you win every year, you get to play at the gardens. But I certainly found out yeah, that that wasn't never true. have an opportunity to play in the gardens in her lifetime. So yeah. that's incredible. So you're how old at playing at Maple Leaf Gardens? I was 10. Yeah, I was 10 years yeah. old. Yeah. Yeah. So Adam age. And then where do you go from there? Where does that take you? Well, we moved to North York and that's kind of where, again, my, my parents weren't, they weren't the pushy types where they were looking for places for me to play. It was just, we just kind of lived our lives and I didn't really know where to look to play hockey. So I just didn't play that year. I played a lot of pond hockey. There was a tennis court, not too far from where I lived. And there was a, this ice pad there that was artificial ice with an ice plant and everything. I used to go there every day and, and skate. And what I did do is I, I actually um, would skip school <laughs> to go play hockey. I, that, was, that was when I was in junior high, but I, I ended up getting caught and got in a lot of trouble. But, but after that, um, after that first year, I played a year house league. I found a house league to play and I was 11 years old and I did that. And um, the next year, just turned 12, they, the, the house league program we had had a double A level team in the MTHL, which is now the GTHL. And I went to try out and I got cut. And I remember I was really upset. I was like, again, I was 12 years old. Uh, it's it's April. I'm, I'm not going to be 13 until October. And I was, I was so upset. I was crying. And as I left the rink, I thought to myself, you know, I don't even know why I got cut. Like, why did, why did he cut me? So I wiped the tears from my eyes. And this is funny because I was there by myself. My parents weren't there. And the rink was about was out was in a town called Thornhill, which was outside the city limits. So the, the public transportation didn't, didn't even go there. I had to walk two or three kilometers from the, where the bus stopped to get to the rink. Again, by myself, 12 years old. And I walked back to the coach and I asked him, you know, I said, coach, what do I have to do to make this team next year? What, what, what is like, why did I get cut? And he told me, he said, well, it's your skating and you don't skate well enough. And I thought I was a good skater, but apparently I wasn't good enough. So I went home dejected. And um, about a week later, I went to the library, found a book by Bobby Orr. And um, in fact, it's funny, someone, I was telling the story to somebody about 15 years ago and he gave me the book. He got it when he was a kid back in 1972. And I've actually got it right here in, in my office. Uh, anyway, um, I read the book and in there, there were a lot of drills and I wrote the drills down. And I'd go to public skating every Sunday for a couple of hours and just practice all the stuff that Bobby Orr said you had to do to become a good skater. And the funny thing is, I would say, what is it, six years later when I got recruited for college, um, that was the one skill that got me recruited was the skating. I never wanted to hear another coach tell me I couldn't skate. I, I, I said, there's no way this is going to happen again. And, uh, and so six years later, that was, that was the reason I got recruited because I was a good skater finally. So I find that remarkable though, like how resourceful you were independent to, um, focus in and hone those skills, uh, yourself independently. Well, yeah, I was the type of kid that I always wanted answers to things. And if I, I wouldn't accept, you know, I wouldn't accept, I guess, rejection or failure, whatever you want to call it, unless I had an answer. And then I always felt that, 
if you if you knew what the answer was, you could fix it. I just felt that way as a kid. You know, if I knew what was wrong, then perhaps I could do something about it. And so, as it turned out, you know, I, I was right, and I was able to fix it. And um, that's how I kind of handle everything in my life. If I if I can't do something, I figure out why, and then I try and fix it. Problem solve, yeah. So, who were some of the favorite stars you uh, looked up to, uh, NHL stars, when you were younger? Well, big time for sure, Mike Marzen. And um, because when I was about 12, 13, maybe 14 years old, I was told that black people couldn't play hockey. I think I was about 14, actually even before that. And I was told that black people couldn't play hockey. When I was, when I was 10 years old, I got a chance to go to a Maple, Leaf, a Maple Leafs game. It was a preseason game against the Washington Capitals. And I get to the game, I'll never forget it. Me and this guy named Kevin Stork were sitting in the blue section right above, right above the, um, the Maple Leafs uh, net, which Mike Palmatier was a goalie. And uh, lo and behold, there was a black guy in the Washington Capitals. His name was Mike Mars. And he, I remember that night he fought Tiger Williams, who was a huge hero to us. And he did really well. And um, I just fell in love with this guy. And I remember getting his hockey card. Then I got Bill Riley's hockey card, who also played for the Caps. So those are my two first kind of hockey heroes. And then from there, of course, you know, of course, I like Daryl Sittler, Lanny McDonald, Boria Salming for sure. But then eventually it became Ray Newfeld. Um, Tony McKegney first because he, he got to the league first. But when I saw Ray Newfeld, I was like, because he was a star, you know what I mean? Like a, a really, a really good player. And um, I just kind of, these, these were the guys I really looked up to, those, those four in particular. And did you know at the time that Mike Marsden kind of grew up, like you grew up in Scarborough, where you, did you just find that out when you went to the game? Like, did you sort of get more interest in him? I didn't after know. You saw him play? I didn't know where he was from. Um, I think I, I may, I may have, once I got his hockey card, I probably discovered it then because it's on the back so I would have I guess I would have figured it out but I never really connected him with Toronto a lot I just kind of connected him with the guy who proved to me that black people can play hockey and so um you know when I saw him that was just proof I thought to myself again I always felt like I was a somewhat logical kid so if someone's telling me black people can't play hockey and I would point to Tony McKegney and say well, what are you talking about there's a guy there's two guys on the Washington Capitals so what do you what do you mean so I, whenever, whenever, when an adult would tell me that, I literally thought they were they were they were just not very intelligent, and I wouldn't listen to them. I just thought this, this guy has no idea what he's talking about, so just dismissed yeah. what they had to say. So just um, for listeners knowing this episode, the Mike Marsden was the um, second black player to play in the NHL following Willie O'Ree. So after a twelve year absence, so yeah, I think that's pretty incredible that you got to see him uh, see him live at Tommy Leaf Gardens, and as you mentioned had a teammate, Bill Riley, who grew up in the East Coast, and they both played for the Capitals in the early 70s. So pretty incredible. So uh, so what type of player were you? What position did you play? As a kid, I wasn't really sophisticated enough to figure that out. I played defense my very first year. And um, Boreas Salming was my favorite defenseman. So I, I tried to play like him, but I but I had no offensive skills whatsoever. In fact, I didn't score a single. I think, no, actually, I'm lying. I got one goal that year. And, um, and I, th I think what happened was I was on a semi breakaway, I fell down and I pushed the goalie in the puck in the net. I swear that's exactly how I scored. I remember feeling really good because the goal is a goal. <laughs> I felt great, but that's how I scored. And, um, I just kind of, from there, I tried to be an offensive defenseman and coaches at the, at the house league level didn't like it. They wanted me to, to hang back. So they said, all right, we're going to make you a forward. And again, I didn't score a single goal. I, th I think I did put the puck in my own net once that year. Didn't score a single goal. In fact, then after that, I played two years of, of travel hockey, we'll call it. And um, I mistakenly tried it for a Bantam team when I was a minor Bantam. 
So I played I played a year up for two years, did not score a single goal for two years. So I'd say, what's that, three, three years, no, not a single goal. But I, I loved it. I had fun. I loved, did that, loved did that Bantam experience push along your development? Uh, you know what? I think it did. And the reason the reason I, I discovered it by accident, I didn't realize it was pushing my development. I, 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 I was afraid to get hit, didn't want to go anywhere near the puck in the corners. So I was terrified for two years. And then I, I played soccer. I was really good at soccer. And what happened was a team that I was on was a triple A level soccer team. And we got to a point where we had to start playing year round. I told my coach I couldn't do it. And he said, well, and, you know, unfortunately, you can't be on the team. I said, well, you know, that was that was fair because everybody else was at practices and I couldn't make it in the winter. So I, I, I tried out for another team, made that team. And and I, I discovered eight of the players on this hot on this team were all on the same hockey team. And they were the same age as me. And I liked these kids. So I tried out for that team. And uh, the, the funny thing was, I was told by my mom, I flunked ninth grade history. So I was, what, 14? I flunked history. And my mom went ballistic and told me that I wasn't going to play hockey anymore. That's it. No more hockey. So this is June, right? So I'm not taking it very seriously. And um, tryouts were in August that year. So it was a Saturday afternoon tryout. I think I was leaving the house around 10 o'clock in the morning. Because I always like to get to the rink really early. And I was walking past my mom with my hockey sticks in my bag. And my mom asked me where I was going. I said, well, I'm going to go to tryouts. And she says, no, you're not. And I'm like, well, yeah, mom, it's at 2 o'clock today. She says, no, no, you don't get it. You're not playing hockey anymore. And I said, what are you talking about? She says, you don't remember back in June I told you because uh, you flunked history. And I said, you were serious about that? And she goes, yeah, put your stuff away. So we had this big argument. Of course, I lost. I went in my room. I threw a tantrum. I, you're going to think I'm a psycho when I tell you this, but I grabbed a pair of scissors. I cut up my equipment. I broke my bed. I was 14. I broke my bed. My mom came in my room and saw my bed all smashed and said, well, I hope you enjoy sleeping on that because I'm not buying a new one. So, so I fixed it with hammer and nails and whatnot. Then, then, then I heard my mom leave and I realized she was going to the hairdresser. She's going to be gone all day. So I sewed my equipment back up really fast, hopped on the bus, went to the tryout. And for the first time in my life, I was literally the best player on the ice. I scored about four or five goals in the scrimmage. And the coach loved me, wanted me to play on his team. And he, he went, I went to the team manager. She asked me a bunch of questions. And one of the questions was, what are your grades like? Didn't think much of it. I said, oh, I, I get C's and D's. I kind of lied because I was a, definitely a solid D student. No question about that. And didn't mention the F. And she, her face went blank. And uh, she went and got the coach who happened to be my soccer coach, too. And his, his name was Mr. Earl Perry. And he was furious. He said I couldn't play on his team because I didn't, get, I didn't have good enough grades. And I, I, thought, I said, what are you talking about, coach? He says, well, you have to have a B average or higher to play on my team. And I, I couldn't believe he said that. So I, I kind of just walked away and said, well, my mom won't let me play anyway, so who cares? And I stormed off. He told, he ordered me back. He said he'd take care of it. He'd talk to my mother. And he did that day. I, I almost got killed when my mom found out what I'd done. But you know what he, what he said was, I got back on the phone with him. He said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to come down to my house every day after school. You're going to do your homework with my son, Stephen, who happened to be on the team also. And he says, I'll, I'll come home from work. I'll check your homework. And then, you know, you're going to head home. So I'd go over every day, and many days I didn't do my homework. Mr. Perry would get home from, from work, and I'd be playing street hockey outside with Steve and the kids, and he'd start yelling at me because I didn't do my homework. Finally, he got me to focus. I started doing my homework, and you wouldn't believe it. I started getting A's and B's. And, um, and during one of our conversations, I, I told him that my plan was just to get someone to do my homework for me and take exams for me in college because just like the guy Robbie Benson in, in that movie One on One, that I can just do that. And he smacked me in the back of the head. And he goes, are you an idiot or something? He goes, that's a movie. 
I said, what do you mean? He goes, you have to have good grades to get into college. It doesn't matter how good a hockey player you are. And I said, I, I thought, wow, there's no way. I, I, I couldn't believe it. And sure enough, I got started getting really good grades. And um, that just kind of propelled me into junior hockey and on, off to college. So Mr. Peary is one of those people that uh, quite influenced in terms of uh, developing some sort of uh, structure and commitment on your academic side. Absolutely. He, um, he taught me a lot about hockey, but more importantly than anything else, he taught me a lot about life. And, and, and definitely part of that was how to prioritize your, you know, how, what, what your priorities were. And he always told me it was family, school and hockey. And, and friends come after that. And I, I, I just, I've, I adhere to that still to this day. That's, I, I, I tell my students the same thing. It's family, school, hockey, and, you know, and, and, and your friends. So, um, you know, for, for me, actually, you know, the, I took it a step further for me and my family it was God first. And um, I was very, you know, that's something that was very important to, to me um, as a, especially as a youngster, just uh, my faith was, was number one. And then of course, family, school, hockey um, in that order. And uh, definitely my friends and everything else was, was last. And, you know, I still managed to have great friends. And even to this day, we're still very close. So, so things worked out really well. That's right. So other questions I have during this time period, then you mentioned soccer. Were, were there, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big uh, fan of the multi-sport era when people did different sports and were hungry to play hockey, hungry to play soccer. And coaches sort of trusted that you were in shape and brought you the tryouts. Were there other sports you delved in? Yeah, I did actually. I, I so soccer was my soccer was actually my number one sport until I was about seventeen. Then I, I quit and focused one hundred percent on hockey. But um, but you won't believe it. I uh, I one year I broke my arm, and so I couldn't play soccer that year because uh, tryouts were, were when I, when the tryouts happened. I had a cast, a, a full length cast from my shoulder down to my wrist. So what I did was I was I was I, I was adamant about still participating in gym class. And the first segment we were doing basketball, so I I did everything left handed. I had a I had a full cast on, and I and I'm, I I can't believe the teacher let me do this, but there's no way I was going to sit on the sidelines and, and watch people in gym. So I played basketball, then I played volleyball, and then you won't believe it. I uh, the next segment was badminton, and I learned how to play left handed. I became really good at it, and the badminton coach was my gym teacher and said, "Listen, you should you ought to try out for the badminton team." I said, "All right, fine." So I tried out, did really well. Went to the city championships. We lost, me and my partner. And then the next year, my last year, when I got my scholarship, I didn't want to take any chances of playing any crazy sports and get injured. Yeah. So I played water polo. <laughs> well, we, we had a hot water polo player on uh, a few weeks ago. So oh, no kidding. Yeah, well, I, I loved water polo, man. I, I, that was, that was, I, I didn't realize it was as, phys- as physical as it was, yeah. but, but it was much safer. There was no chance of twisting a knee, maybe – Worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to get an elbow in the face and break your nose or something. But other than that, it's, it was re- really hard to get hurt in that sport. Um, and I, of course, I didn't get hurt. I was always the biggest. I was the biggest guy in the league, and uh, you know, it was pretty. It was pretty easy. Yeah, <laughs> it was Peter Worrell, oh. I believe, was the other player who did uh, wire pulls. Really? We're on, yeah. So we're on. We're on to something here. Wow! Yeah. I didn't know he played water polo. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So and it just talked about again, like the ability to use your hands and you know operate within traffic and yeah yeah so yeah more and more of that uh those experiences should be shared well they say so, you can't swim either right so that's proof well that's, that's that was another thing too yeah that's another one yeah <laughs> yeah so i i was uh surprised to hear that but that was great so the other thing then um uh, talking about the benefits of other sports and 
unfortunately, that's not always the case nowadays, but uh, I think people should be kind of try to be good athletes and rounded and well-rounded and follow your passions and hopefully it'll come together. Um, the diversity at the time, were there other um, black players or racialized players you encountered in your experiences growing up? I did actually. Um, um, I remember there was one team called the uh, Young Canadians out of the North York Hockey League. The entire team was from the Jane and Finch area. And, um, and then over the years, there, 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 was a, there was a couple other kids. I forget one guy's name. He played junior hockey in the OHL. And I don't remember his name, but I remember he was an inspiration to me. I, I wish I could remember his name now. Oh my God. Um, Mike something or other. And um, I used to, I used to run, you know, for his training. He was several years older than me, but I used to watch him train. He'd be running down the street, you know, and getting his, his road work in and stuff. And he played, I think for the Belleville Bulls actually. And then um, there are a few kids here and there, um, a kid named Erskine. I don't remember his first name either, but he played for the uh, Toronto Young Nats at the uh, midget level. I remember watching him play when I was when I was um, playing um, juvenile hockey. He was a year younger than me, but uh, yeah, there there weren't a lot of black players. But it, it, the funny thing was, actually, the, the any black player players that existed back then were actually really good and played in the played at the AAA level in the in the G in the MTHL. And uh, there were very few guys like me who who were sort of the, sort of the bums in the, of, of hockey back then. Most most of the black kids that that played were in the MTHL. They were re- all really good hockey players. I was like sort of an I guess an anomaly. I was I wasn't very good. Um, wasn't nearly as good as those guys. So I, but I get the sense multi sport athlete, very competitive ability to develop. So you're hitting your stride in your uh, later teens. So tell us about your transition then from it must be one of the rep teams to then playing for the Minimical Monarchs, which is a junior B team. Yeah, I, um, after my midget year, I, so I played A hockey all the way up. And uh, after my midget, now luckily, weird thing is um, when I played midget, um, the coaches that I had had just moved down from the Don Mills Flyers Bantam major team. I don't know why they stepped down to our league, but it was a it was great for me because um, I learned so much. It's the first time I would ever learned that there were systems in hockey. I didn't know that before. Breakouts and things like that, power play systems. I had no idea, but, uh, but John Dufton and John Lee were the two coaches. And they taught me all of that. So John, and I, the funny thing was, none of my coaches ever discouraged me. Like they probably should have. I'm playing one step above house league, basically. John Dufton is a coach at the AAA level all the way up until this one point in time. He never once told me to forget it. I'd tell him what I wanted to do. He, he'd just say, okay, well, this is what you have to do to get there. So you want to play college hockey? Both Mr. Perry and John Dufton said, you got to play junior B or junior A, tier two. So okay. So at 16, I tried out for a junior B team. I got cut right away. They said, hey, we have a juvenile team, which is one step down. I guess you could say it's almost like junior C hockey. They said, we have a junior, a, a juvenile team that feeds our junior B. Why don't you go try out for that team? So I went to that tryout, got cut. Then I then I looked in the papers, found another juvenile um, major team to try out for. I got cut from that team. And then the third team, um, fourth team, actually, it was a juvenile A team. So I made that team. <laughs> so... So I'm in the locker room one day after after the tryout, and the kids in the room, there's about 10 kids in there, and they're all talking about smoking weed and doing all kinds of stuff that if I even thought about doing that stuff, my, my dad, my parents would literally kill me, and you wouldn't see me again. So I didn't want to – I had never played on a team where kids did that stuff. I remember one, one team I played on, one kid smoked cigarettes, and that was it. The kids I played with were all, like, just good, solid citizens. Honest to God, Mr. Perry made sure of that, and John Dufton made sure of that, but – 
this team here had a bunch of guys that were into stuff that I wasn't into. So I was going to quit hockey because I didn't want to play on this team. And I remember contemplating it, thinking about it. And the luckiest thing happened, I, the, the second juvenile team that cut me had a kid that made a junior B team last minute and gave me his spot. And the weird, the thing is, um, I, I went and played for this team. It's called Juvenile Major. We had a team party. And at the team party, the, parent, uh, the parents weren't there. It was actually at the coach's house. He and his wife were gone. And there was beer there. And I didn't drink. So one of the guys offered me a beer. And I was 17 years old. I said, nah, I don't drink. And so he looked at me and kind of scoffed and said, what are you? He called me the P word. And I got, I was angry. So I just said, listen, um, you know, you want to step outside in the front lawn and call me that to my face again? And he said, no. I said, okay, well, listen, I don't drink. So leave me alone, right? So that was it. So I'm, I'm convinced the guys are going to hate me. But I, I'm, I don't really care because <laughs> I'm not drinking. So the next party, I remember going to the party thinking, oh, man these guys are going to hate me and trying to make friends on this team. And it's not the best way to start, but anyway, I get to the party and uh, they have a case of diet Pepsi. And they said, that's for you. I go, okay, great. So they're playing a drinking game called quarters. And I wanted to play. They like, let me play with Pepsi. And then they, they voted me the assistant captain. Like these guys had all played together for about six years and they voted me one of the captains. So, so I, I learned a valuable lesson, you know, about, about people respecting you and, and um, I, I stood my ground. I mean, I probably shouldn't have threatened to beat the guy up, but I stood my ground. And um, I think the guys respected that. And I became the assistant captain. And um, uh, two years later, uh, the second year I played there, halfway through the year, the, the uh, Wexford Raiders, which was a top junior B team in Toronto, asked me to play. Like, they wanted me to leave my team and come play for them midseason. I chose not to. And um, you stayed. You stayed with Mimico. Yeah, I stayed. I, no, this, I stayed with um, with with the with the Villagers, and then oh, that's right. The, the yeah. next season, every single junior team in Toronto, like Tier Two Junior and Junior B team, everyone wanted me to play for them. I had about six teams, and one of them was Mimico Monarchs, and I chose that team because they're sort of a middle of pack team. I didn't want to go to the Wexford Raiders because they were super loaded with superstars, and that would have been like a fourth line guy, maybe a third line guy. So I went to Mimico thinking, okay, I'm going to be in the top six for sure, maybe even the top line. And the, the coach had NHL experience. He played in the NHL. And I, and I figured, you know what, who, who better to teach me how to get there than a guy that played there, right? So, again, trying to think logically. And I went there, and um, I remember reading an article about a guy named Steve Bozek who was playing at, I think, Northern Michigan. He was a free agent, undrafted. He wrote letters to every NHL team asking for a tryout. And I remember reading the article thinking, this guy's crazy. These NHL GMs aren't going to respond to some college kid. Well, sure enough, Rogi Vashon did in L.A., Gave him a tryout. He made the team. Played, I think, nine years. So I'm reading this article. And I thought to myself, you know, if it worked for him at the NHL level, I wonder if it would work at the collegiate level. So I went to my guidance counselor. And I said, hey, Miss, Miss O'Connell. Her name is Miss Helen O'Connell. I said, I read sort of the article. I said, I want to send letters to every single college in the U.S. and beg these guys to come watch me. So she gave me a book that was about 10 inches thick. It listed every college in the United States, everything, junior colleges, universities, you name it. And in there, it listed all the sports sports teams. So we didn't have the internet. Yeah. Yeah. So you had to go through each one one by one to find the sports teams. And then if there's a hockey team there, I'd, I'd write a letter and send it to that coach. That was a plan. It was a Friday. That night, I had a, a preseason game. I played well. I got a couple of goals. And after the game, three colleges recruited me. <laughs> oh, wow. So I went in on Monday to Miss O'Connell. I said, hey, Miss O'Connell, guess what? I, I don't need that letter. She said, why? I said, well, I just got three scholarship offers on Saturday or Friday. They were just. And she said, really? I said, yeah. And that three turned into 15 within six weeks. So suddenly because I had 15 you had... offers and I'm thinking, okay, where am I going to go now? So 
So that was a really fun experience, so, you know, having all those. So your year when you decided to mimic, what, what had changed with your game? Can you describe the type of style you had that made you stand out? A lot. Um, after I broke my arm my first year in juvenile, um, I was really into weight training and, and I was pretty, pretty uh, big and I lost a lot of it because I had the cast on. So I went crazy in the gym after I got the cast off. And then because I missed so much hockey, I need to get my, my timing back. So a friend of mine told me about this skate at the Chesswood Arena. Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 6 to 3 p.m. you could skate for five bucks. So get, I'd get there at 9 o'clock and there's a bunch of little kids there. So I just kind of like condition skate myself, work on my hands, work on my shot. Then at 10 o'clock, won't believe it, but Scott Mellenby um oh boy uh gino and paul cavallini oh a bunch of other guys um uh oh pokey reddick and his brother believe it or not Smokey. so they all showed up and they skated for two hours so i skated with these guys and i never forget one day i'm in the locker room because we did the ice after an hour after in between the two hours and scott mellamy was talking to this guy that went to wisconsin was asking him about, you know, where to get his keys and his books and stuff. And the guy was telling him, you know, where to go when he gets to campus. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, like, that guy's so lucky. Because he'd just been drafted. Scott Mellonby, four guys from – five guys from Henry Carr, Junior B, got drafted. He was one of them. And I remember thinking, oh, he's so lucky. He gets a scholarship. He doesn't have to, doesn't have to pay for college. And I hope that happens for me one day. And I skated with them all summer, uh, six hours a day, five days a week for ten weeks. Did that for two years. And suddenly – um, two years later, I'm in that same locker room, except Adam Oates is sitting beside me because I'm going to RPI. He's, he's, he's going to be a senior. This is before I didn't know he was going to sign a month later with Detroit, but at the time he was going to be my teammate. And I was asking him the same questions. Hey, where do I get my books? How about my dorm keys? And he's telling me all that, where to go. And I remember it hit me. I go, Oh my God, it happened two years ago. I was hoping this would happen. And here it is. I'm talking to Adam Oates about where to get my books and my, my, my keys for my dorm. And it just, it just blew my mind that it was such a, such a surreal moment that it actually happened two years later, you know, but uh, that's what happened in my game. It just, I, I skated with those guys. I, yeah. I picked so, up a lot of stuff from them. So tell the listeners then where, where is RPI and what was that whole experience uh, landing on campus and you've got a scholarship, uh, full scholarship, half scholarship, and is it guaranteed you're on the team? Do you have to still, Earn your stripes, or how well, that'll go. I, I happen to be the number one recruited forward in the country my recruiting year, but for a Toronto kid, we want to go to Michigan State or Michigan, right? That's where we all want to go. So I was, I was Michigan was Michigan State was the number one team in the country. Michigan was way at the bottom. They just started out with uh, Red Barons and just taken over, so they weren't very good. But I wanted to go to Michigan State because it was the number one team in the country. RPI was number two, and I had no idea where RPI was. Never even heard of RPI. I went for a visit, and that's when I saw Adam Oates. And I was like, oh, my God, I remember that guy for the Markham Waxers. And I remember everyone saying he was a terrible skater, was never going to make it to the NHL because of it. And I watched him. at I got to see a practice. I'm thinking his skating looked better than it did four years earlier. So I asked the coach um, how, how he got so much better. And he says, well, we have a skating coach. And I thought, what's a skating coach? Because this is 1984. I don't know what the heck that is. He goes, well, we have a guy that comes in here and works on the skating, and plus our guys go to him for the summer and spend 10 weeks in Boston. I thought, really? I said, if I come to RPI, can I do that? And he goes, yeah. So I said, all right, I'm coming to RPI. <laughs> well, I actually committed to Cornell first because I'm thinking Ivy League, but then I found out that they don't give scholarships. It's, it's need-based financial aid. So I said, forget that. I want a full ride. So I called the RPI coach and said, listen, I'm coming to RPI. As long as I can go train with this Paul Vincent guy like you promised. And he said, yep. 
So I went down there and spent 10 weeks that summer before my freshman year to learn how to skate better. Because I was already a good skater, but I felt, I felt if, if he can take Adam Oates and make him that good, what can he do with a good skater? You know, so, and then sure enough, man, my skating went through the roof because of him. If you're enjoying Recognize and thinking about starting your own hockey card collection, I'd suggest you start with eBay. eBay is all about connecting communities and fueling passions. Because of its thriving card collector community, I was able to make my dream come true by collecting the rookie cards of the NHL's black and biracial players. Start your own collection at ebay.ca slash hockey cards. So you play RPI. It looks like a steady uh, steady um, commitment here. There's probably a 30-game schedule. It looks like you played almost all the games and contributing with points. So what's the, the whole overall experience like an RPI? Because you were talking about a little bit, some challenges you had with your education. But now you you are settled in as a really committed student for four years and along with hockey. Well, I couldn't have picked a more difficult school to go to. RPI, the, the joke joke around campus was at RPI, they teach you one thing and test you on something else. Like the exams were, were ridiculously challenging. And we have kids who are geniuses that were complaining about how hard it was. And there I am, you know, an average guy in, in class with kids who are probably running Microsoft and, and Twitter now, right? Probably invent, half of these kids probably invented Twitter. And I'm sitting there with these guys and thinking, because we, we had to take all the sciences too and all the math. Even though I was a business major, I had to take everything. Like I had to take computer science classes and stuff like that. It was crazy. So, so but the, the experience was very hard, very, very, very challenging. Um, but the, the hockey part, the, the school part, the academics for me was was the good part. The hockey part was terrible. Um, I, I didn't like playing there at all. It was um, uh, it was a tough, tough experience. I, I, it's hard to find one guy from my gener- my generation of RPI that liked it there. Um, it just uh, the coach created such a horrible, horrible um, atmosphere. It was crazy. You had you had this class structure where you know the seniors didn't talk to the freshmen. The sophomores were it was like a, it was like four different four separate teams. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. I, I I was blown away that these guys won a national championship, but maybe I was missing something. Maybe things changed when I got there, but I show up with, there's 10 freshmen and every guy on the team hates us, like just hated us and just dumped on us. And, and, and then of course we band together. We hate them. I remember I had two friends, uh, two of my closest friends. My roommate was a goalie and another kid from Montreal was a goalie. He was a sophomore. So, so they hate each other. And I'd be hanging out with my friend John. He'd be telling me, well, why are you hanging out with Tony? He's a jerk. And I'd hang out with Tony. He'd say, why are you ha- hang out with John? He's a jerk. One day they, got, they came to blows. Come to find out the reason they hate each other is that the coach would tell John, hey, Tony says you're a terrible goalie. And then you'd go to Tony and say, hey, John says you're a terrible goalie. So they just hate each other. And he did this with everybody. It was I, I couldn't, like, how does this guy win a national championship having a divided locker room? It was so divided. We hated everybody. I couldn't stand the upperclassmen. Like now we're all friends and we're all comparing notes. Well, that's what he did to them too. Well, Graham said this about you. So and so said this about you. And it's like, it was crazy. It was like a, it was like a dysfunctional high school, high school, uh, you know, um, cafeteria. It was ridiculous. So it wasn't so you, fun at all. But what made you hang in for four years? Well, a couple things. So my my freshman year, 
Okay, first of all, <laughs> after about a month, he asked me. I was on the ice for practice, and the coach calls me over to the bench. He, the practice was over. He'd, he'd already gotten his skates off. He, he wanted to talk to me. The assistant coach who recruited me was at the other, other end of the bench. And the coach looks at me and says, Graham Townsend, you are the biggest recruiting mistake in the nation. I almost started crying, but I didn't want to cry in front of this guy. He points to the assistant coach. His name was, um, his name was uh, Jim Stewart. And he goes, people are questioning his recruiting ability because of you. You should quit. So, of course, I wasn't going to quit because, you know, I'm not leaving. So then at Christmas, he, um, he had a meeting in the, in the lobby of the Renaissance Center in Detroit. We were playing in the Great Lakes tournament, big tournament. And he had a meeting in the lobby in front of the elevators, and he berated me and two other guys and tried to get us to quit. Because back then you could leave and still play. You didn't have to sit out. That was the last year they allowed that. But for some, and one of the guys did. He actually said, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave. He got up, went up to the Northern Michigan coach, said, hey, can I come here? And the guy goes, yeah, oh, Michigan Tech. And he left that day. Me and the other kids stuck it out. I just didn't like to quit. I didn't want this guy to beat me, you know. And um, so I, I stuck it out because of that. And lo and behold, um, sophomore year, the guy midway through the season, he makes me an assistant captain. Go figure. And then I became one of the tri-captains my, my junior year. Again, go figure. I can't. I could never figure this guy out. I thought he hated me. And there he was making me a leader of his team. And um, that was the worst thing ever, being a captain there, because, oh, my God, if, if you if you missed a class, like, I got I got in trouble. It was, like, I mean, serious trouble. And it was just ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it's just uh, instead of him handling handling these things, he wanted me to, to be the muscle, you know. And, um, you know, again, you just start hating guys even more now because now guys are breaking rules. I'm getting in trouble. And, they, and, they're still, and, and it just it was just the worst worst most toxic environment ever but it definitely um made me stronger getting through that and and uh, not just getting through it, but thriving because i remember he told me my junior year i was never going to play pro you know tell he was gonna tell every scout that i suck and um i was gonna quit but then luckily i talked to a pro scout that summer before my senior year and the guy convinced me not to quit and he guaranteed me that someone was going to sign me i was a free agent and sure enough the Bruins signed me at the end of my senior year so I, I, I almost quit. I, I almost quit many, many times, but I just, um, just something about me. I'm so stubborn, you know, and like looking, if I had the, the uh, transfer portal back then, I probably, oh, yeah, for sure. I probably, I don't yeah. know. I, I actually, I don't know because I'm such, sometimes I'm such an idiot. Like I, I just want to prove people wrong. It isn't it crazy. Cause I, I, yeah, you want to stay true, right? like, I, yeah. I probably would have just stayed just to prove them wrong. You know what I mean? Like, Oh God, I wish I wasn't like that all the time. Cause I suffer a lot because of it. <laughs> <laughs> so were there any successes though with uh, playoffs or any rankings never Just... oh, we, we beat university of minnesota once they were the number one team in the country we smoked them in their building that was that was the highlight and, and it's funny because my class graduated as my senior year my class graduated and the coach got fired because he, he um there's an incident with me involving you know where he used the n-word and all that long story short he got fired so now my class leaves and we had we had three defensemen who were drafted and then there was me also Signed with Boston. So the four of us were really good players, I thought. Well, that team, which was definitely depleted, went to the ECAC championship game. So suddenly, imagine this now, okay? Joey Juno's a freshman, Manama Jr. He's averaging three points a game up until Christmas. He's the best player in the country, like seriously, as a freshman. The coach takes him off the first line and puts him on the fourth line with two guys that can't even skate. And so Joey's numbers were terrible. And so Joey hated hockey with a passion. So now the coach leaves. Joey becomes now he's a junior, and he's again one of the top players in the country. Like leads the team to the championship game in the ECAC. They lose in overtime to Colgate, 
And they lost in overtime to Colgate because of a major error by a young defenseman, a sophomore defenseman that would not have happened if the guy had more experience. Colgate lost in the national championship game to Wisconsin that year. That's how close we were. Like we beat Colgate and you never know, right? You win a couple games here. Then now suddenly we're in the frozen four. We're just a few games away from that. And we were good enough for us to go into to Minnesota, the number one team in the country, and literally like we destroyed them the first night. We literally ran them out of their building. We, we had, we had ability, but that's how close we came to being really good. And it, that, that does, that does sting because who knows what could have happened if we had a, a different coach. Yeah. So uh, I want to touch on something that's never easy for black players to talk about. And you, you alluded to a, an incident it's up to you with what you delve into it enough, but uh, for us, but tell us about the issue of race in, in maybe guess your college experience and yeah, really, was, really, was, that, really was, was that an issue for you playing in the States or I had, I had one issue with a teammate and again, I'm not going to talk about how I handled it. It's, I, you know, it, it didn't work out well for him, <laughs> but it was bad. And, uh, and yeah, so I had one teammate um, who, a Boston kid, and I'd always kind of heard that Boston had that sort of, sort of vibe. I didn't experience it living, being in Boston in the summer at all until I met this guy. And it was my sophomore year and we had, we had it out. And then um, after that, really, I, I got called a name one time um, against, against UMass boss in a preseason game, and, and the kid immediately apologized to me. So, again, I always viewed it – I viewed that as a guy being frustrated. I didn't really think of it as racism. I swear to God, I didn't think that way. I thought – because I had a couple goals that game. I had a really good game. We blew them out. They were D3. We were Division One. We, we, we beat them badly, and so he was frustrated. And, um, and then, other than that, a couple times at, at the pro level – but again, was there an issue with the coach though? Did you say, or yeah, the coach, my, my senior year. Um, so we're playing Brown university. I got the game winning goal. We had another black kid on a team named Bruce Coles, who's still one of my very, very good friends to this day. Um, I'd scored the goal. We're changing lines. Everyone came out and congratulated me and we didn't skate by the bench back in those days and give high fives. We just kind of, you know, it was different. So Bruce came up and just, he hugged me. I guess that's what he did differently than the other guy. So anyway, during the game, it was a it was a close game, and uh, Bruce Coles and uh, Joe Juno were being benched, and so they're on the bench and they were kind of goofing around. And I yelled at them. The coach heard me and told them to go take a shower. So they were gone. They left. So the game is over. I'm being interviewed. I got first star, and I'm being interviewed. And got in the locker room. And what he what he would do is we'd sit down in our stalls and he'd go one guy at a time and tell you what he thought about your game. Like he'd go through the entire team, and so. I'm sitting down, I'm number 12. So he goes from one and he works his way up the roster. And so he's getting close to number 12. And I remember thinking, and, and it's all negative. We won the game, but it's all negative. You stink, you this, you that. So this was it. This was four years. Then I could have, you could get, I could score a hat trick and he's going to tell me I stink. So I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm laughing inside thinking, what is this clown going to say now? I got the game winning goal. I can't wait to hear what he says. So he gets to me and he pauses and looks at me. And he says, you know, Townsend, what I saw between you and Bruce after you scored that goal made me sick to my stomach. I'm thinking to myself, what the heck is he talking about? And he goes, I've been watching you two a lot lately. You've been spending a lot of time together. Now, a little backstory. Bruce is from Montreal. He's got a similar upbringing to me, uh, as, as I do. And coach wanted me to sort of mentor him, right? So he asked me earlier in that season to have Bruce move in with me. He goes, you want, I want you having breakfast with him, lunch and dinner. I want him with you at all times. I said, okay, no problem. So I did exactly as I was told to do. 
Now he's complaining about it. The coach, he says, I'm spending too much time with Bruce. I'm thinking to myself, this guy's an idiot. Now, you told me to do this. All right, let's keep going. So I'm looking him right in the eye. I'm looking through him. And he says, um, instead of you two getting together and uh, calling the NAACP and forming a coalition against the rest of us, you ought to bloody his nose. <laughs> At the time, I have to be honest, okay? I, I'm a fool. I didn't know what the NAACP was. I thought he said NCAA, but looking back, he said NAACP. Now I know what he meant. And um, he said, you ought to bloody his nose. And he says, if you don't stop acting like an N, I will start treating you like one. And that was it. A little little switch went off in my head. And my first instinct was to get up and just go to town. And I remember the words of that scout who told me the, uh, the previous summer. He goes, um, go to school, play every game, don't get in trouble. I remember those words. So beating up your coach is definitely trouble. So I decided not to do it. I went to talk to him after the game, and I just basically said to him, you know, listen, um, don't ever use that word around me again. He, he claimed he was trying to motivate me. I said, look, look, coach, you're, you're an intelligent man. Think of something else, okay? Don't ever, ever use that word around me again. That's all I got to say to you, and I got up and left. That was it. And then um, so it got out. Someone told one of, the, one of my teammates, told the dean, and um, so he, coach, got, coach got a slap on the wrist. And then what happened was the director of admissions who hated the coach, they both, because he tried to get players in, the guy wouldn't let him. So they, they, they hate each other. And so he, it's, it's widely thought, no one has proof, but it had to be someone like that who leaked. Who had a little bit more power and clout, right? And then, yeah, just then it went, as soon as it got to the press, it was at the end of the season, we just lost to Harvard. And on, by Monday, it was everywhere. And uh, it was a mess. And so I, I left school, went to went with Paul Vincent's family to Florida to Disney World for about 10 days to get away from all the hoopla. I had, I had some easy classes, so it was no big deal. And then I got back and the whole campus was about, it was like, it was like about to burn, man. People blocking bridges and it was crazy. Protests everywhere. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, man. So were I, the I, protesters in support of your position? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Protest, protesters wanting the coach fired and stuff, and and then they're anti-protesters and oh my god! I, me and Bruce just stayed away from everybody. We, 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 we our teammates wouldn't talk to us for obvious reasons because if they showed support for us and the coach didn't get fired, then their lives were going to be miserable. I think you know, guys, the guys coming back. So I, I understood why they didn't want to hang with us. Um, you know, even to this day. All those guys, again, are my best friends. And I do understand because I think I would have done the same thing knowing I got another year left and this guy's going to, oh, my God, I can't imagine what it would be like if um, he came back. So so we, we just sort of stayed to ourselves, kept to ourselves, Bruce and I. And um, and this just got through it. It took about, it was about two months with all this stuff going on. Uh, luckily, I left I left and went up to Maine to, to try out for the, for the Mariners, uh, to, for the Bruins. I, play, I was there for two weeks. So that was good. I got away from all of that then. And then the Bruins signed me afterwards. I had another month of school. And then um, then we're done. Uh, yeah. I mean, whether you talk about being racism or just, just a constant strain for three, four years, I, I think it's unbelievable how um, how you maneuver through all of that, really. It's just uh, <laughs> it was tough. It was tough. But I guess I, I just had a lot of support. I, I had very good friends. Um, family, for sure. My goodness, my family. Um, I could lean on them, um, my brother, mother, and sister, and just uh, just wanting to play hockey so badly. I mean, you're kind of willing to put up with all of that stuff because you know the the, the love for the game outweighed. But I, and you know, quite frankly, I, I I always dealt with it though. I never I never took it. I really didn't ever take it. I always 
responded in a demonstrative way. And just this one time, I didn't do it with the coach because I didn't want to get kicked off the team. But I went to him. I, I, ne I never had the courage to stand up to this guy until this time. And, and I knew I was right. So I just wanted to make sure I put him on notice. Like, just yell at me all you want. Call me any name you want. But you better not call me that again. And that was it. Yeah. You know? So, and we're, we're in an era where um, most, most of the power at all levels mostly was held by coaches and managers and upper management. Not, it's not perfect today, but uh, you know, one would think along the issue of um, the uh, conduct, of the coach, whether it's uh, racism, whether it's just the overall conduct, there would probably be one would think avenues today where, you know, players could speak to someone and it'd be, supported right so yeah i think it's i think it's great you know today now athletes especially collegiate athletes are no longer indentured servant servants right you you've got the transfer portal of things and i can never understand why the ncaa made like, made it so hard if you, you go to a school you, you know if you're you're a, a biology student you don't like it there you can transfer and go to another school and i don't know why they couldn't they wouldn't allow that for sports it didn't make any sense to me the, the coaches and administration administration had all the power. Now, now the players have a lot of power and the coaches, they, they're on notice. They, you know, and it works both ways, right? Um, yeah. If you're, if you're a problem player, they can get rid of you too. So, so I think there's more balance. It's more, it's more, it's more of a level playing field, I suppose. That's right. So I think yeah. it's all good. Yeah. Well, those are very interesting stories that um, not many people probably have an idea that you went through. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, let's move up now to your, your first NHL game in terms of the journey of uh, RPI to, to Boston. And do you have memories of playing for Bruins? And do you remember where that was and what that moment was like? Oh, sure do. Um, so I wasn't supposed to even be there. Um, they, their Bruins were trying to send me down to the East coast league. I refused to go. I had a two way contract. So I didn't have to go. Then they tried to send me to Italy. Then they tried to send me to the IHL and I refused. So, so what they did is they punished me. Um, every day at practice, um, I would get extra skating and, um, Rick Bonus was the coach there, and he, like, I, I got skated by myself all the time. And I know they were trying to break me and make me quit, but it was funny because they don't, they didn't know what I just got, what, what I just gone through. Like they have no idea. Um, after one one practice, we were, we were. Bob Beers came up to me and says, "Hey Towner, how could you have such a positive attitude when you know they're trying to screw you over?" And I looked at Beers. I said, "Listen, I said these idiots are paying me to skate for two hours a day. Are you kidding me?" I'm living a dream, man. I can skate all day long. I'm in great shape. So anyway, finally, Rick Bonus pulled me in his office and said, listen, I'm going to stop doing this to you. They told me to do this, and I think it's wrong, so you're, you're working hard. I'm going to play you. I said, great. Well, I was in such phenomenal shape. I had seven goals in 10 games, so I got called up. <laughs> so I'm in the NHL, and I'm playing against Montreal my first game. And uh, it was hilarious because, honest to God, like two months before, they were telling me they're trying to get rid of me. Now, now they can't. Now they can't. They can't stop. They can't stop themselves from taking me. So, I'm on. I'm on the bench, and I'm looking at the blue line and see the Montreal Canadiens there, and I can't believe it's the Montreal Canadiens. Like, oh my God, the jersey looks so much brighter in person, <laughs> you know. And uh, there's Patrick Wall. Oh my God. So yeah, it was. Um, Is this in Boston or Montreal? It was in Boston. It was in Boston. Yeah. Was like, yeah. And um, I, had a, I had a really good game. Uh, in fact, the next day in the papers, they were they were they were commenting about how they they thought I was just going to go, go up there to fight. I had ended up fighting that game. I lost my fight, but um, they were surprised I could skate, I could shoot, I could stick handle. I mean, I was thinking these guys, what, what do they think? I'm like, I can't play hockey. This is ridiculous. But you know, I proved I could play, and that was that was a great feeling. And um, it was it was a short stint. It was only four games, 
but then I ended up playing a lot more the next year. So, um, yeah, it was just a great experience. It was definitely surreal. I, honest to God, thought I was dreaming. I had to bite my tongue to make sure it was real. And um, it was just, uh, it was awesome. It was a great, great experience. So you mentioned four games. And then, again, sticking with it, um, what happens after that? You Next year, I had a, was having a really good year in the minors again, and I got called up. I played 18 games the next year. And I think, I think what happened was, you know, back in those days, fighting was such a big part of the game. And I really wanted to prove I could play. You know, I remember one game we're in St. Louis. We're losing badly. And I knew I had to fight somebody. Otherwise, I, I was going to get sent down. Shane Stevenson fought Rod Brindamore. So he's he, he and I were both call-ups. So I, I I went I went after a guy named Glenn Featherstone, and they're they're beating us like six two. And Glenn Featherstone goes, "Look, shut up, man! I'm not going to fight you. We're, we're winning six two. You know, beat it." So he was right. I think why fight me? Just 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 for the sake of fighting, it's just ridiculous. I I thought this is such a stupid concept, fighting just for the sake of fighting, fighting just so they won't send me down. So the next day, in the paper, the big article, Townsend no Stevenson impresses Townsend depresses because I didn't fight. I got sent down. And I remember sitting with Rick and Rick, because Rick would debrief me and he said, so how'd it go? And I said, well, you know, I got sent down because I didn't fight last night. I said, I'm going to fight everybody in this league from now on. And that's it. And Rick looks at me and says, Graham, you don't have that in you. You're not, you're not that type of guy. He goes, you, you got to just got to go out and play physical. He said, once in a while, if you play physical, you're going to have to fight, but you're not just going to go out there and be a, and be a, a goon. And I said, all right. So that was it. And that was, that was sort of my role. I just decided to be a player. And um, two years later, I ended up getting, getting 29 goals in the American League. I was second in the league in power play goals, first in the league in, in scoring percentage. Had a really good year and still struggled to get a contract. I ended up with Ottawa, and I only played 12 games there. And, again, they just wanted me to fight. And Rick Bonus was a coach, which was weird. But the general manager is the one that was sort of calling the shots on that team. It was Randy Sexton. And I know Randy flat out told me one game uh, we were going to play Montreal at home. And he asked me to come to the stands while Montreal was doing their pregame skate. And he says, he wanted me to fight Lyle Odeline. So I fought Lyle Odeline that night and I lost the fight and they sent me down. <laughs> I can't believe the GM actually told me to do that. He said, yeah, I want you to fight that guy tonight. Well, okay, great. So what are you going to do, right? Just did what I was told to do. And then I lose and, and then they, they, they punish me. It was just, that, that, was, that, was, that was it. After that, I just well, I'm doing what I want to do from now on. The thing is, too um... – you know, most college players, because there's no fighting in uh, U.S. hockey, or if there is, you you get suspended for three games. The profile of the player really wouldn't be coming out to be a fighter. And if I look at your statistics with um, the RPI, you've got a reasonable amount of penalty minutes. And then, as you said, Maine, you you start out, you know, you're, you're scoring proportionally to your games. Um, you know, you're, you're an average scorer with Maine over 64 games. You've got, you know, 28 points and the next season, you've got uh, same thing, 46 games, 26 points. And I appreciate what you're saying about the the penalty minutes because I, I think it's, it's almost like you're sort of caught in this role of them pushing to be a fighter versus you're an all-around player and, and maybe not finding a hole at, on that second, third line or whatever. That's what it seems like to me. Well, exactly. And, you know, the, the funny thing is it's all about timing. I think it was 2002 or 2003. I was at the draft in Buffalo. I think it was 2002. 
And there was a, a guy, his name is actually, his name is um, Matt Cater. He was with my agent. He was working with my agent uh, when I played his, his, his name was Steve Bartlett. Well, Matt was on his own now. And he was representing the uh, a player whom um, I worked for the, the, the father. I was a coach of the Macon Whoopi and the father was one of the owners. So this kid um, was, was playing at Harvard and Matt Cater was representing him. So we we're at the draft to see where this kid was going to get drafted. And so we're sitting there watching the first round and they're, you know, they're calling out all the names and stuff like that. And, and um, I remember they're showing some video and, and, and the guys didn't look that impressive. The, the top 10, I, I didn't, and I just said to, to Matt, I go, man, it's amazing that these guys are getting drafted and they don't even know if they could play in the NHL. And Matt says, yeah, well, that's the way it goes, Graham, you know, but every one of those kids is going to get the cap. And I go, oh, okay, cool. Didn't know what the cap was. I had no idea what he's talking about. Either. And he says, in fact, he goes, in fact, if you were coming out of college today, 2002, with the stats that you had, he goes, I could have got you the cap. And I said, well, what the hell is a cap? He goes, a million bucks. I go, are you kidding me? He goes, you could have got me a million-dollar contract. He goes, yeah, with your numbers that you're seeing here, absolutely. The game's changed. I was like, oh, my God. I got a $15,000 signing bonus, and I was happy to get it. <laughs> this guy's saying I could have got like a you know half a million-dollar signing bonus and all this just, just for scoring 20 points. I couldn't believe he said that, but that's how it is. It's just the game changed so much. I just, for me personally, it's just, you know, not the right timing, right? So it's like yeah. Gordy Howe. Gordy Howe would have been making $20 million a year probably, but he was in the wrong era, right? So, <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, you know, I want to let listeners know, though, as you continue to play on through the NHL, you played for the uh, New York Islanders, a stint with uh, Ottawa Senators, as you mentioned, then you shift on to the AHL with the PI Senators than the IHL. So I guess you are, are a professional player up until 1998. So, you know, are, are you making decent money in the IHL? Yeah, the uh, IHL was great. Um, it was it was my most fun experience in hockey, playing in Houston. It was great. I mean, honestly, they treated treated us like we were in the NHL in that, in that city. And the guys are making great money. The IHL, that's why the league folded under its own weight because um, they're paying us too much. But um, – that's the way it goes, right? The, the, I think the the American League absorbed about four or five teams, but um, and the rest just folded and or became ECHL teams. But uh, yeah, we were making great money. We're flying everywhere, playing in big cities like we're in Detroit, Orlando, L.A., San Francisco, um, also San Diego, great Denver. So and this is before uh, the Avalanche moved in there. So yeah, we we're we we're in all these great cities, and the hockey was awesome, you know, and 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 the crowds everywhere you went, buildings were packed. It was. We had fifteen thousand people a night in Houston. Okay, and so yeah, it was it was it was awesome playing there. So I want to ask you then, with the NHL experiences and also the HL and IHL, did you get a sense you're starting to play a lot of American cities where people, um, other young black children or fans, looking up to you? Do you recall any experiences where um, that happened? There, there, you know, believe it or not, there weren't a lot of black fans at the games. Um, in Houston, especially, uh, there really wasn't. But, but uh, you know, you, you, I don't really recall seeing too many um, kids of color in the uh, in, in the buildings. Honestly, um, you didn't see a lot of it. Um, and we played in places like Detroit, Orlando. Um, you know, Houston being a huge basketball city. Of course, when you went to basketball games, you saw a lot more people of color there. But really, not a lot in hockey. Not a lot at all. And I guess the outreach initiatives that are probably more friends here with NHL in terms of growing diversity, there weren't those types of experience where you might be visiting schools or there wasn't, I mean, wasn't that much of a campaign, I guess, right? To I did a lot, I did a lot of that for sure. I, I visited lots of schools. In fact, I, I, um, 
got the award, a man of the year award for community service in the IHL. But yeah, I did a lot of that. I went to a lot of schools, a lot of uh, charitable functions and, that's wonderful. Yeah, again, and not a lot of African, not a lot of African American communities, um, neighborhoods. Um, really wasn't, uh, which which is disappointing. Yeah. Okay. So um, I want I want to talk about now about your experiences outside of hockey. So I've heard you were a professional coach in the Central League, and also then you moved on to be a player development coordinator for the NHL Sharks, and then you'll have to tell us about your experience as a head coach the Jamaican men's national team. So can you? Go in those order and tell us about your evolution of those experiences. Yeah, I'd, I'd say about halfway through my career, I decided I wanted to coach. So I started attending coaching seminars and stuff like that. So I got my first job in Macon in the Central League. I did that. For, I was there for two years. And then I got promoted, went up to the ECHL in Greensboro. And that was when I decided I didn't like coaching anymore. I really didn't like it. So I resigned from my job, actually. I was about to be fired. We were the worst team in the league. I was, I was going to get fired. Um, the owner had changed his mind. And asked me what he thinks I should do. And so I said, I said, you should fire the coach. <laughs> so he said, so, he, so what he did is he, he promoted me, made me vice president. Well, he, he liked me too. He got along really well. So he wanted me to, he wanted me to stick around. And I didn't want to be a, I don't want to be a VP in an office and stuff. So I, I actually um, left after the season and said, listen, you know, thanks for the opportunity, but I don't want to do this. So I got into real estate, started buying properties. And all of a sudden I started getting these coaching jobs. Um, the Sharks wanted me to be an assistant coach in Cleveland in the American League, which was another promotion. And I said, nah, I'm not doing that anymore. So I started doing the real estate thing. And then eight months later, Doug Wilson called me. <laughs> and he says, so I know you don't want to be a bench coach. I said, you got that right. He goes, how about being a, um, a, a skating coach? And I said, well, what do I have to do? Because I said, I'm not moving to California. I live in Maine. He goes, well, no, no, you can, we're, we're going to move our team. You can, you can go to Cleveland and be a consultant and help us out with our players there. I said, all right, well, how often do you want me to go there? He said, well, once a month, spend about three or four days. I said, okay, that, that works. So I did that for a year. And then I guess they liked what I did. They asked me to be a, to come on full-time. I said, hey, I'm not moving to California. I didn't want to live in California. They said, no, just come out here 10 days a month, and we'll move our American League team to Worcester, which is close to you, and you can go down there three days a week. I go, that's great because it's only a two-hour drive. I spent three days with the guys in Worcester, and then I'd go home. And then once a month, uh, you know, in Feb- and especially in February and January, it was nice going to California for 10 days. So I did that, and it was awesome. I loved it. And then um, had a bit of a falling out with uh, management. I, um, I didn't feel I was being fairly compensated. <laughs> and I, and, and Because they wanted to give me more responsibility, but they didn't want to pay me more. And, and I said, I'm not doing that. I, I, so I said, listen, you want me to, want me to do more than you got to give me a title and, and, and pay, me, pay me fairly. And um, they didn't want to do it. So then what I did was I actually did a, I did something a little bit nasty. I went behind their back and because Ron Wilson got the job in Toronto. So I went behind their back and talked to Ron and said, hey, you want me to come to Toronto? He goes, yeah. So I went to the GM at the time, Cliff Fletcher, and asked about it. He said, yeah, we'll take you. And didn't ask the Sharks permission. I wasn't under contract with them. I was done. But, you know, the right thing to do would have been to to, to, to talk to them first. But what, what, the way they treated me was unfair. I um, My contract was expiring. And I wanted to know what their plans were for me. So I, I was calling the GM and he wouldn't return my calls, which before he always did. So I was pretty upset about that. So I went to San Jose to do a hockey school for the Sharks. And while we were sitting in the locker room, the other two coaches from Worcester were in the same same position. They, they didn't know what they were up in limbo. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to go up to, up to Doug's office and talk to him. 
No, you, well, you can't do this. I said, yeah, he, I'm going there. I don't care what he says. I went up there and I poked my head in his office. He looked surprised to see me. He said, hey, we have to talk. <laughs> I sat down. I said, what's going on, man? Am I going to my back or not? Yeah, we want to bring you back. I said, okay, well, let's get something done. Well, we, we just got to wait till after development camp. I'm, I got suspicious. I'm thinking, why does he have to wait? I'm going to just sign me right now. Well, what was happening was they just got rid of, they, they were planning on getting rid of Ron Wilson, which they did after that. And the new coach came in. And when that happened, I said, okay, let's let's do something. Well, no, no, let's wait for Dev Camp. I said, okay. So I was auditioning for the new coach because Todd McClellan was showing up and he was watching me when I was on the ice at Dev Camp. Ah, okay. And uh, so the last day, Todd leaves, and all of a sudden they have a contract for me. So I guess Todd liked me. So I didn't like that. They could have been honest. Hey, you know what? We want to see if the new head coach likes you. Just tell me, you know, don't play games. So I said, all right, well, here's the deal. Um, you're going to have to double my salary. Oh, no, we can't do that. I said, oh, really? Okay, well, I'm not signing this. So then that's when I called Ron and went behind their backs, and they were furious with me. They still don't talk to me this day. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> I love working in Toronto. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then what followed Toronto? I asked, so, so Ron Ron got let go in Toronto after four years. And, um, and then what happens was uh, you follow coaches around, right? So I, I followed Ron from San Jose. Well, man, you wouldn't believe it. But Ron had a stroke, can't coach anymore. So that was it. Well, that was my kind of my, that was my connection. And uh, that was it. So I just focused on my hockey schools. And that's what I've been doing since 2012. What's that, 11, 11 okay. years now? And tell listeners where that happens. What cities? We, we, uh, we operate out of uh, Gorham, Maine, at the University of Southern Maine in, in Gorham. It's just outside of Portland. And we run five weeks of boarding camps there. That's my main focus. And then I coach. I run two organizations in the winter, uh, fall and winter, um, one in Maine and one in Boston. I coach several teams there from September to March, and then my summer camp start in July. That sounds like you're firmly established now with this. Yeah, I, I, I love what I do. Um, it, it's it's the best job ever. And you know the thing is, working with kids and helping, sort of paying it forward, doing what doing what Mr. Perry did for me, doing what like that's really what I, where I belong. You know what I mean? And not working. I really don't belong working with pros. Um, I'm not really. I don't know. There, I sometimes think some guys are spoiled rich guys, and I don't. I just it just rubs me the wrong way. You know what I mean? Whereas kids, before they get there, there there's a the, the work ethic seems to be a little bit different. And uh, when guys get there, I think sometimes they change, and I just didn't like that. So I'm better off. I'm I'm much better suited for what I do now. And I mentioned Jamaica national team. Do you still have affiliation? I doing don't. That work? I don't. Um, I was involved with them for a few years. Um, again, the focus was was solely on getting to the Olympics, and they don't understand. Um, Great Britain's had hockey for a hundred years, and they have, they they're not in the Olympics, and they don't understand the process. And I, my my whole goal was to was to bring kids from Jamaica, get them into hockey, bring them up here to train them. Get them into college, get them educated. You know, what I mean, do stuff. That's what I want. That, that's, I wanted the grassroots stuff. They had, they wanted nothing to do with that. So I just, okay. I, I just basically yeah. walked away. Yeah, you wanted more of a strategic plan to follow yeah, all that. Exactly. Would, you know. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, step one step at a time, and make sure who who should benefit the most from this. But the kids, that's yeah. who we should focus on. Not about not not getting to the Olympics. You know, for the adults, the kids should. That should be the focus. For me, that's, that's right. just me, and it's it's that's not that's not we we just. I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm just saying we just didn't. Uh, we just, just, just our, sure. our philosophies and goals were completely opposite, right? So it wasn't a good okay. fit for me. Yeah. So within this work with Maine, then 
Are, are you seeing any changes in terms of the cohort of kids you have that uh, are coming from a variety of backgrounds, whether that's by uh, by income or race or equity groups? Are you finding that? I, I do see a lot. We have a lot of um, kids of color that come to our camp. A lot of uh, people of color who are my coaches. I've got guys from all different kinds of ethnic backgrounds, and I I do that intentionally. I want I want our um, I want our our, our our coaching staff to reflect our, our society. I want I want to, I want the students to do the same, right? So we have kids from everywhere. We have, we have we have five kids coming from Israel this year. Okay, we have a kid that that's coming from Dubai, right? And um, and two kids from kids from Hong Kong. So that's what I want. I want. And, and it's great because all these other kids from Boston, New York, Pennsylvania, California, they, they get, you should see how these kids get along. And, and I swear, if, 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 us, if we adults could watch these children, I think they'd solve a lot of our problems if we weren't so stubborn. But these kids are amazing. And the way they embrace each other, the way they embrace each, uh, different cultures and, and races, um, it's, uh, it's just awesome, man. And, and, you know, we had one incident last year where there, there, was, a, there was a racial issue. And I got rid of all three kids. <laughs> I told their parents to come. They were 14 hours away. I said, hey, you're coming here. Get your kids. Because I told them on Sunday, this is this, we have zero tolerance for this. You're going to accept everybody or you're gone. And I couldn't believe these three kids went 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 defied me. So I just uh, we sent them home. And the parents came to pick them up. And they were they were mad. And I, and I said, you're, you're going to be even angry because I'm taking off my mailing list. I don't ever want to see you guys here ever again until your kids prove to me that they've changed. So... Well, you've set the expectations and standards yep. and that culture builds over time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that, that's really neat to see. And I think that's the power of sport, what you're describing and power in edu- education and you're teaching kids and they're learning from each other. And uh, um, will, the, will the players then sort of graduate to different levels of hockey? Can you see many of them moving on to higher levels? Absolutely. Um um, they, we have got several college players who train with us. Many of a couple of, actually one of our guys, like, what is it now? One, two, three of our former students are playing in the NHL right now. Brian, Brian Dumoulin in Pittsburgh, uh, Garnet Hathaway in Boston and a kid named Jonathan Gillies is a goalie. He's been sort of up and down between the NHL and the American league for about seven, eight years. But those three came through our, they, they were former students of ours. And then we've got kids at all different levels, uh, different levels of levels of college hockey, minor pro um, club hockey. And so, yeah, they're, they're, they're from everywhere all over. Okay. So you've lived in the States now for a fair number of years. And obviously, you know, we always think as Canadians as basketball, baseball, football, our bread and butter sports for us. Now we're starting to see some growth. How, how do you, how do you start moving some, some athletes there to see hockey more as an option? Like, is are there barriers or is just more of a interest thing? I think I think there's more barriers uh, than interest. I think um, hockey is very popular in the Northeast here in the U.S., um, but I think the barrier to entry is the cost. It's it's. It, I just I was on a meeting today with the league that we're going to be playing in, and I couldn't believe when the, when the uh, director of the league said because part of the, some of the teams are in New York, he said that one of the rinks I don't remember the name of the rink. But he said ice time is nine hundred dollars per hour. I pay two sixty five an hour during the winter, fall and winter here um, in Maine, and in Massachusetts it's about three fifty an hour. Okay, for for ice in the winter, 
Can you imagine nine hundred dollars an hour for ice? So they well, it just squeeze, it squeezes the opportunity because a small number of people can actually get on the ice yeah. and it's driving up the price. Yeah, it, it's in, in that one particular part of the country. It's literally a, a game for those who are privileged, rich, a rich person's game. You can't nine hundred dollars an hour. Like, think about that. You know, just just for the ice, then you got to pay for coaching and all the other referees and all this other stuff. I can't imagine what it would cost to 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 to, to Run a game, it's got to cost you twenty five hundred bucks for the game. I think to, to have a game for us down here, it's about six hundred dollars. Referees, okay. scorekeeper, all that. There, it's got to be close to two grand or more. It's crazy. Yeah, and if I compare the pockets of areas that you have to have that capacity of ice time, so may, maybe it will take some donor, some uh, some city to make a donation for ice time. I know that some college programs didn't exist before because there wasn't uh, an ice rink and then a donor builds an ice and they have a program. So it seems like a similar concept, whether it's a donor, whether it's a city making the commitment for ice time. But I think that, I think the kids will play. It just need more opportunity to actually have kids play yeah. that will broaden. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here in Maine, you see it happening here. So, so university of Southern Maine, right. They open it. They're open to the community. So the, the public, there's a lot of, a lot of youth hockey skates there in high school hockey. And then you go down the, the, the Alfond uh, Fund. They, they build a lot of rinks all over Maine. So there's a rink up at, at Bates College. They don't let, from what last time I heard, they don't let any youth hockey play there. It's just for public skating and for the school. And then you go to University, University of New England, town, this next town over for me in Biddeford. They have a beautiful rink, an Alfond rink. Alfond family, they, they subsidize and build all kinds of sports facilities all over New England, all over Maine, basically. It's a Maine family. This beautiful rink there, no youth hockey, nothing. You can't get ice there. In fact, you call the rink manager, he never calls you back. Um, they just It's not open to the public. So they have this beautiful rink sitting there. Imagine what it costs to keep that ice in there, and it's only there for the men, men's and women's hockey team and maybe some intramural hockey. Nothing, nothing for the community at all. And, and they want the community to go out there and support the hockey team and go pay money to go watch college hockey, but they don't let the kids play there. It's ridiculous. They, they're completely off the off off the you know, off the rails, and that just that's, that's part of the problem right there. I mean, exposure, yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's really interesting. But I think we've sort of pinpointed anyway what needs to change because when I think of the other facilities, I'm sure they're the nicest they've ever been now when it comes to football, baseball, and these other sports. But I think you can still get to them and you can still play and. That's that's one limitation I see for hockey. So I'm going to wrap up here. Sort of just asking you then, what advice would you give to a young hockey player today? Um, you know what? Number one, honest to goodness, have fun. Um, you know, make sure you treat people with respect. Your teammates, opponents, referees, parents. Just be be respectful and honest to God. Like that to me, it's all about character. So you could give advice to say, shoot the puck harder, practice this and that. But you know what? Without the character, you're not going to do all those things. You're not going to spend the extra time training. So I could tell them to train and all this, but it's not going to happen unless you have the character. And, and character is what you do when no one, when you when you don't think anyone's watching, right? So so I would say just just be a character person. It starts with, you know, being respectful, how, do, how you treat people. And then you take care of all of that. You're a good teammate. And, and if you're that kind of person, all the other stuff. Like, in other words, you're gonna you're gonna be leaving a rink one day. You're gonna get you're gonna want to know why you got cut, and you're gonna go back and ask the coach politely, "Hey, is there a reason why you cut me?" 
and hopefully it gives you an answer because I, 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 I'm probably the first kid that ever asked that guy that question. And I was, I was respectful. I didn't, I didn't, didn't tack him, didn't yell at him, just said, sir, you know, can you tell me what I have to do to be, to be better? And he, and he told me. So I, I really think it starts there, you know, and um, that's what I'd say. Be respectful, you know, be a, be a person of character and everything else take care of itself, really. Well, that's really great advice. And I, from, from listening to you or doing this interview, I can see that you've been consistent in terms of what you've uh, stood for throughout your life. And uh, it's benefited you from some of the, uh, some of the challenges you've overcome. And I can see that you've internalized that and learned, learned from it and learned how you have adapted. And also you're, you're mentoring others um, just as you were mentored and supported by the coaches when you grew up. So Thank you uh, very much for spending the time with us, uh, Graham. And if I get out uh, Mainway sometime, I've been to Boston a couple of times, but we'll have to look you up and catch up with you. Absolutely. Lo- love to have you up here. Just let me know and we'll, we'll take care of you. We'll get you some lobster. <laughs> That's good. Well, I have lobster and PI at well, times too at this right. place, so, but we'll be New England. That'll be great. <laughs> We're proud to be working with Hockey Equality. Hockey Equality is on a mission to create diversity at all levels of the game of hockey by lowering financial barriers for BIPOC female and other equity deserving youth hockey players. If you've been moved by the story shared on this podcast and want to help make hockey accessible to all, check out hockeyequality.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to share this story with your kids, then check out My Hockey Hero. It's shorter and suitable for the whole family. You can click the link in the show notes or find it wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Podstarter production. production.